Welcome to the Old School Meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, which features speakers with long-term abstinence. We will be holding this meeting via Zoom for the foreseeable future. If you'd like to attend the meeting live, go to oalaig.org for login information. And now, our speaker. Hi, my name is Diane, and I am a compulsive overeater anorexic bulimic. Hi, everybody. I'm very glad to be here, and I'm honored to be asked to lead at this meeting. I've been to it in person some time ago, but I sort of totally forgot that it was would have been on Zoom. Um, I love this program, and this program has helped me to let go of a lot. I'm going to get into the past, but just sitting here, I have a long top on, and I thought, oh, I, I probably need a Kleenex because I get so emotional about stuff. So let me go in the pockets that I know are here, except they're not here. They're on the back of it because I put it on backwards. And in the olden days, I would have cared, and that would have been enough to eat over something. You know, it's like, oh, my God, what will people think? I've had this on backwards. And you know what? Nobody cares, partly because they're all as obsessed with them as I am with me. But that's one of the many things I learned in this program, that nobody pays attention to me like I do. And um, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And I... um I've learned so many things in this program. So it's interesting because when I came in, we used to talk about what it was like. So it's interesting that here in the format it says what I was like. And um, uh, I was angry, resentful, bossy, uh, childlike, a victim, yo-yo weight dieting and eating, I was a food hider. I was a food taker. I was a lonely child. I was a suit overachiever. I was over-responsible. I wanted everybody to do what I said to do. And uh, there's a great card that's written in a scrawl of a, of a, um, of a kindergarten person, which suggests that it's a four-year-old who wrote it, and it says, if everybody would do what I wanted them to do, I wouldn't have to be bossy. And that was one of my things, that if you would just do what I wanted you to do, then everything could be okay. And that was the, the, the stasis that I was searching for every day and night in my life, was just wanted everything to be okay. And I couldn't tell you what was wrong. You know, I just wanted to eat. I can, I got an allowance. I'm old. So that when I got an allowance, 10 cents a week, 10 cents a week, bought a lot of penny candy in a small town in Quebec. I can tell you that. And, um, I stopped every day at Monsieur Le Bonte's on my way home from school and I bought all I could get. And, um, for some odd reason, I was the only one of the five kids in my family who was sent to French kindergarten. Nobody else was, none of the other English kids were, so I was by myself in this other world, which was another reason to feel anxious. And um, I have such a strong memory of coming home by myself at like five years old with my little book bag and my candy. And, um, you know, I used to buy breakfast cereal there. They started having sweetened breakfast cereals back then. I used to hide it under my bed. And, you know, because I didn't want to share it with anybody. That's the kind of thing I did. And um, I had friends, but I always felt like there was something weird. That There was a famous old line about feeling alone in the middle of a crowd. And that was me. And, um, you know, 
I don't know if I'll ever, quote, understand it. And I've learned in program that it doesn't really matter why it happened. It matters what do I do now? What do I do now? And, you know, what I did now was do the next thing in front of me. And I thought if I could just achieve enough, do enough, think enough, run enough, whatever, I would be okay. And that has been a lifelong challenge for me is to put that aside. And um, I didn't know there was anything wrong with me or my life. I just was going to get control of this food and I was going to, um, then everything would be okay. And I was never obese. I was busy. I played sports. I ate to take the edge off. I ate a little bit to take the edge off, but enough to take my mind out. That's all it needed. And um, I can remember my first diet, and I just wanted to get in a smaller size prom dress. And um, I did. And then I started eating again. And that's what my life was like. And when I, uh, my mother died by suicide when two weeks before I turned 18, and I was absolutely devastated. I had no, I had no understanding of what had happened back then. Nobody talked about it. And I still Time thought, for I still, still thought if I could just um, get to the right way, it would be okay. And I would understand it and I would get through it. It didn't happen. I got to graduate school, which is now a few years later, and somebody sent me diet pills, which you couldn't get in Canada for good reason. But I took those diet pills, and I did a two-year graduate program in 10 months. And guess what? I don't remember. I don't know what I learned. I have a very nice degree, got a great job. I didn't know what I was doing. But three weeks into it, I hated it. And I was acting out with food over and over. I I was a bulimic in the in the not old-fashioned sense, in the name that still doesn't really have a name, which was chewing my food and spitting it up, doing Weight Watchers, taking diet pills, using laxatives. That was my form of trying to control my food. And um, I thought it worked. Certainly the diet pills worked for a while. They kept me up all night, but I didn't care because it wasn't being thin worth anything. And it turns out, you know, it didn't help. When I think of my 20s, I think of a big black hell, because I wanted to die every day. Every doctor I went to gave me pills to take to feel better, antidepressants, even in those days. And I kept them all in a shoebox, because I didn't want to take them, or I only took a little bit or half of it, because I didn't want to have to use them. And I kept all those pills, and I thought, you know, when I turn 30, I can kill myself, because then I will have tried. Nobody could say I didn't try to have a life after my mother died by suicide. I would have tried, and surely they would forgive me. And um, I kept that shoebox of pills in my closet. I, on the outside, had this amazing life. I had this great job. I came to the States. I got transferred back to Canada. I got transferred to New York, my dream place, by myself. This is uh, collecting my pills. When can I die? When can I die? When can I die? Please, can I die? I hate my life. I don't know what's wrong with my life. I had, I, I became a runner because I thought maybe that would help. Maybe I could run myself somewhere, run myself well. And, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I'm running. And I'm running, I feel like I'm running a marathon in the wrong direction, but nobody will tell me what the right direction is. That was the sense I had with my life. I'm going and I'm going and I'm going. I know it's not the right direction, but I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And I um, was, I heard somebody say years ago, this is 1980, oh my goodness, 1980, end of 86. I heard somebody say, 
if I uh, can't lose these 10 pounds, this was in Quebec, no less, not even in the States. In Quebec, say, if I can't lose these last 10 pounds, I'm going to have to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I thought, Overeaters Anonymous? What's that? And I knew about AA in a very vague way. Um, but there had been an AA conference in Montreal. And every I remember walking around with my pals and, you know, going out and drinking like 20-somethings do and thinking, Everybody's so happy. Who are all these people? They were ordering soft drinks and water and nothing. It's like, oh, that's the AA people. But I will never forget how happy they were. They were having a good time. They were polite. They were, have a chair, you know, take a chair. Can I help you? They were unbelievable. And I never forgot that light in their eyes, that look of happiness, that what I now know was happy, joyous, and free they had. And I connected that when the person said Overeaters Anonymous. So, uh, six months before my death date, which was my birthday in 1988, um, I found my way into an Overeaters Anonymous meeting because, thank you, God, OA was there and doing the same public service they do now. It was in the phone book in New York. July 8th, 1987, I went to a meeting at Atlantic Hill Hospital, and I stood in the back, and I listened to the meeting, and I didn't understand it. And I thought you could only go once a week. So I went home and I sat on the bathtub and I cried my eyes out because I had no idea what had happened, but something had happened. And because I didn't know you were allowed to go more than once a week, if you're new, you can go 10 times a day. I went back the following Wednesday, July 14th, had a binge in that week. I tried not to, but I had a binge. And that next Wednesday, July 14th, 1987 is the beginning of my current abstinence. And I went to a meet, some kind of meeting every day for the first two years. I was in therapy. I started going to Al-Anon meetings as well because I got a sponsor. I was too afraid to ask somebody. Thank you. I kept on. I just kept on doing it. We didn't have our own literature at that time. We used the AA 12 and 12, which I still absolutely love, and the AA Big Book. Um, I have... I don't think I can read this tiny print, but for years I've had this 12 and 12, which is the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous for the newcomers. And just because it always works, I'm going to open it up and read something, uh, which is, uh, in practice, step six turns out to be one of the most difficult of the 12 steps because saying we're entirely ready and being entirely ready are two very different things. Now, this is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. When we are entirely ready for what we are entirely ready for, actually, is to have the difficulties our defects cause us removed while we hang on to the defects themselves, which is very true and something I'm still working on today. And I only use that as an example for me of how any line or two in the literature speaks to me. Anything speaks to me. And um, as a matter of fact, the program has taught me that these steps and traditions and concepts can be applied everywhere in my life. So I get into program, I get a sponsor, I hook myself up with other newcomers, one of whom is in this meeting since 1987, I've known her, and it's been an incredible honor. And many people in here since when I came to L.A., I wasn't planning to come to L.A., but that's how life is 22 years ago, and here I am. And... Um, and there's people in these meetings, and I love the L.A. meetings. I love the program. How have I worked this? Why have I worked this? I've worked this because it has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I will say that there are many times and even months in this program when I have wanted to die. That's just what's happened with me. I grew up with and around depression, and it had an effect on me. 
and I don't know what I would be formally diagnosed with. Every doctor has another idea. I don't really care. I just know that if I do certain things, I feel okay. One of the things I do that I do because my sponsor took me to a meditation workshop in 2003, I meditate every day since July 3rd, 2003. I love meditation. It's changed, but God has not, God has changed, but God has not changed. God is there. So that is the consistent part of it. But I will say, because I just did this exercise with somebody to find out what my new concept of God is. So I'll read this to you because I have to read it out loud twice a day anyway. So God is kind. God is thoughtful. God is generous. God is calm. God is joyful. God is caring. God is considerate. God is understanding. God is communicative. God is open-minded. God is recovered. God is compassionate. God is sympathetic. God is gentle. God is nice. God is peaceful. God is benevolent. God is selfless. God is democratic. God is open, God is tolerant, God is broad-minded, God is cheerful. This has been incredibly helpful for me to get a new, loving, supportive concept of God in my life. I also will say that letting go has become a huge part of my program. I've learned to let go of, of people. I've lost people, both in this program. One of my best friends was bulimic and could not stop and died by suicide herself 11, almost 12 years ago in New York, and I was devastated, but I had learned that I couldn't fix it. And as somebody described attachment to me, if I didn't break it, I cannot fix it. And that has been incredibly helpful to me. Um, I had um, a brain concussion, a blackout concussion for almost four years ago, and it changed my life more than I would have imagined. And uh, the one consistent thing really that stayed around was my close friends with program and program and God and letting go because I couldn't make it better. Nobody believed me. You know, I couldn't read, I couldn't think, I couldn't fill out a form, and I just did the next thing in front of me and looked for more help and did the next thing and asked other people for help because I wasn't supposed to need help. I was supposed to know how to do everything, and I don't. And one of my pleasures, thank you. What's left? Two minutes? Two minutes, yes. What's left today is for me to learn to say, I don't know. I had a huge eye surgery four weeks ago, and I haven't been able to see in one eye, which is coming back and should be back in a few weeks, but I, I can't drive, I can't read, I can't watch. It's been yet another level of letting go and having empathy. And I see I'm going back into the steps in a new level because I need to look at my anger, which is coming up again at this stage of my life. And, you know, I have I have this watch on, which is kind of funny because uh, we've been getting a watch delivered to the house every month that I didn't order. My husband insists he didn't order, but it turns out he did order. So we've been getting a free watch every month through a scam. But the good news is that actually one of these watches I can actually see with my bad eyes. So you know what? It's a gift because if I'm, if I, if I'm careful and I look, I can find the gift in anything. My husband got a parrot. I never liked birds. I'm afraid of them, but now we have a parrot. And the parrot helps him not comment on me and helps me call him darling all the time, the parrot and mace. I call them both darling. And you know what? It eases up. And if I can find the humor in situations, it is life-changing for me. And, you know, there usually is, and there's some people in this room who have very great senses of humor, there's, you know, there's humor in almost everything to a little, at least a little extent. And that has been a big gift for me. I also work on my feelings on a daily basis and a 10th step every day because I want to let go. I want to be ready. My husband's 30 years older than I am. He says he's ready to go. There's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing wrong with him. He's fine. He could well outlive me. And you know what? God's in charge of all of that. My job is to show up for today. 
So I think I must be done. So I'm going to say thank you to everybody for being here. Thank you to God for OA and the brilliance of this program and the support we can offer one another. Thanks for letting me share.